of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 159 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, February 7th, 2024. And I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. We have another big show today, including updates on Fulton County District Attorney's case, as well as new filings in the Hunter Biden case, and the Supreme Court hearing on Trump's disqualification under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Yes. And we also have some breaking news on Georgia and Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones. Um, if that name rings a bell, we'll, we'll give you the background on that. We have potential Rule 11 sanctions against Alina Haba in the E. Jean Carroll case in New York. And we have a special guest today to discuss why we might have a delay in the New York Attorney General civil fraud trial verdict. But first, we need to thank some of our new patrons. Thank you very, very much to J.A. Drew Diaz, Susan from Nevada, not Nevada, Lynn O'Brien, Peg, Roberta Barrera, Oh, boring one, 2000, Bridget Whitley, Jane W., Troy Carter. Thank you so much. If you want to sign up to become a patron, get these episodes early and ad free, and you'll be able to join us on our Clean Up on All 45 Zoom happy hour this Friday at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 Eastern. Um, you can check your email for that link. You can sign up at patreon.com slash aisle45pod. That's A-I-S-L-E 45-P-O-D. Thank you for supporting independent media. It's so important, especially in an election year. Pete, where should we start today? Well, you know, let's go up to New York and start with the New York Attorney General's civil fraud case against the Trump Organization. Now, you may recall we were supposed to have a verdict from Judge and Gorin by January 31st, but sources now say the verdict may come as late as mid-February. So why the delay? Well, to answer that question, joining us to discuss is law professor and co-founder of the Midas Touch Network. Please welcome Ben Mizellis. Great to be here. Ben, hello. It's so great to have you. And thank you so much for all you do uh, for independent media. I think uh, I think it's so, so important um, that we have, you know, we're democratizing the media out there in the new media landscape. And I know the Midas Touch Network, MTN, everybody, if you're not familiar, please check it out. Uh, it has a lot to do with that effort. So thank you so much. Um, some background, uh, first of all, on retired Judge Barbara Jones. Uh, in September 2021, Trump created the Trump Organization 2. Very creative. And then at that point, the New York Attorney General, Tish James, filed a motion requesting a fiscal monitor, like a babysitter, because it seemed like he created that Trump Organization 2 to offload assets ahead of the disgorgement trial, which just finished recently. Now, Judge Angoron agreed and appointed retired Judge Barbara Jones. She was also the special master uh, when we went through Michael Cohen's uh, evidence, also the special master for Rudy Giuliani. So she's played a, a large role in some of these, uh, you know, Trump adjacent cases. Well, she recently filed a report 
pointing out potential fraud, although, as she writes, it is not her duty to conclude that there's any fraud ongoing in the Trump organization. But she said the Trump organization reports were inaccurate. They contained errors. They've been insufficient. And then she included this blockbuster footnote, footnote six, about a $50 million loan Trump made to himself. Ben, what could this possibly be? Well, let's just take a look at the footnote, and I think let's read it, and then let's break down what this um, loan that Judge Barbara Jones ultimately determined didn't exist is all about. And anytime you have a phantom loan where there have been previous financial disclosures that talk about a 48 to $50 million loan, and it turns out that that doesn't exist, let's just say from the outset, that's not normal. That's not the way things are supposed to be. So this was in footnote six. It says from Judge Barbara Jones, based on her 14-month review as the financial monitor, she writes, of particular note, I discussed the springing loan previously disclosed as being between Donald J. Trump individually and Chicago unit acquisitions. Let's just pause there for a second. When we talk about a springing loan, what that often means is a loan with some punitive terms where the borrower is often identified as a bad borrower. So where you have an entity controlled by Trump as the lender, Chicago unit acquisitions, lending money to Donald Trump purportedly and characterizing it as a springing loan. Interesting that the lender Trump is characterizing the borrower Trump as basically being a bad borrower, but let's go on. It goes on to say an entity related to the Trump Chicago Tower with the Trump organization several times. When I inquired about this loan, I was informed that there are no loan agreements that memorialize the loan, but that it was a loan that was believed to be between Donald J. Trump individually and Chicago unit acquisitions for $48 million. However, in recent discussions with the Trump organization, it indicated that it has determined, meaning the Trump organization, it has determined that this loan never existed. And thus it would be removed from any upcoming forms submitted to the Office of Government Ethics and would also be removed from subsequent versions of the MAMLs, which are the um, material assets and material liabilities. Also kind of a strange framing of Donald Trump trying to deviate a little bit from generally accepting accounting principles, calling it something else, but that's a whole nother discussion. So this is about the Chicago skyscraper. What happened with this Chicago skyscraper? Like everything with Donald Trump back in 2008, it devolved into massive litigation against Deutsche Bank, against Trump's other lenders like Fortress and others. And then a settlement was reached, Donald Trump bullying people through litigation. And what seems to have been possible is that the debt, the loan from a Deutsche Bank, a Fortress, and a perhaps conglomerate of other lenders, a portion or substantial portion may have been forgiven. Now, when debt is forgiven under the IRS code, forgiven debt is usually taxed as income. So one way to avoid debt being taxed as income is you could create structured settlements in situations like this where the debt 
that is being forgiven rather than just disappearing and then you get taxed on it, it goes somewhere. Some other entity acquires the debt. Now, there is a strategy of lawful debt parking, the debt's genuinely acquired by some third-party entity, and it's serviced perhaps on new terms, on the same terms, you know, you, you can renegotiate the terms, but you want to avoid the income tax hit of the debt being forgiven. Here, what seems to have happened, red flag number one, is did an entity controlled by Trump Chicago unit acquisitions basically purchased the debt that was forgiven to park the debt so Trump wouldn't get hit with the income tax. Now, if it met certain criteria, although it doesn't seem sound like an arm's length deal with Trump lending to Trump, but there could be a valid explanation for it. But now knowing that the debt was purportedly parked at Chicago unit acquisitions, but that it actually didn't ever exist, but it only existed on paper itself, it makes you question at least, and I think this is giving Justice and Goran pause or anybody who's looking into this pause, <laughs> was the debt ever actually acquired or was it simply forgiven and then steps were taken to make it appear that it was acquired to avoid the income tax hit from the IRS. Further, by then classifying it as a springing loan, there's some other IRS provisions where um, certain amounts of interest can be written off. Was Donald Trump also characterizing it a certain way? So in addition to avoiding the income tax hit, was he, and again, we need more data here, also trying to write off some of the or deduct some of the interest from the springing loan that never actually existed because now we know this loan never existed. So the broader question, is this an unlawful debt parking scheme? A lot more data is needed, but you can see with that analysis I just gave it's a little bit complicated. You got to go back, but it seems that it was something that was just discovered after closing arguments. So question for you, because we've talked about on the show, like way back when uh, Letitia James closed out what she was doing, referred some of that information to both the IRS and I think SDNY. I'm not a CPA. I'm not a financial guy. I'm not an attorney. And I listen to you and you do a wonderful job of explaining it because I wouldn't have followed it. Is this something that if you are an IRS investigator or if you're a tax fraud prosecutor, is this opaque and too hard to do? Is there, what is, do you think there's a logical explanation for why after all of this reporting and go way back to when the New York Times had that big expose about all the fake valuations of real estate and then the stuff that New York State found, do you have a reason or an explanation why we haven't seen something out of the IRS? Well, you haven't had a monitorship like this. I think one of the things that Trump has dreaded the most and that he's most fearful of going forward is a permanent monitorship going forward and really having someone delve into your books and records in a way that you can otherwise avoid disclosures with kind of other accounting tricks. And Judge Barbara Jones and Judge Barbara Jones's team they're the best in the business. I mean, one of the most sought after independent monitors, retired federal judge, 
knows what she is doing here, knows how to identify these types of things. She's seen it all. So I think that really took a 14 month period to be able to identify and make sense of this. I mean, remember you're talking, you know, for all of the things that like when you have a James Comer talking about shell companies and this shell company and 12 shell companies, you know, not only does someone like James Comer, MAGA Republican who heads the oversight committee have shell companies, Donald Trump has thousands thousands. So to really unpack this structure with um, the trust and then how the trust controls the other entities. I mean, heck, when they asked Eric and Don Jr. how it worked and they were supposed to be the leaders of the organization, they claimed that they didn't fully know how it worked. Now, I do want to be clear. There could be a legitimate response to this. And I think what's important always, you know, when we talk about the independent media networks that we, that we run respectively is to follow the data. So I always put the disclaimer, I I'm gleaning this from the footnote, from the history of what happened in 2008. But I think at the very least, a robust inquiry going forward is needed. And in fact, that is one of the remedies that was requested in addition to the financial amount by New York Attorney General Letitia James. Let's have a quasi-permanent monitor, at least for the next five years. Let's give more powers to the monitor to do more than simply prepare reports. And let's really dig into some of these areas. And I think that's ultimately one of the things that made Justice Ngoron pause a little bit, I think, to beef up that section of his order on the monitor's continuing obligations. Yeah. And and not only that, but Trump himself, I think, at some point when asked about this in an interview, was like, oh, it was me. I'm the bank. I lent it to myself. Like, he admitted that he lent it to himself. But then the obfuscation, when Judge Barbara Jones, as you said, goes back to the Trump organization and says, what's this? And they're like, oh, it doesn't exist. The, li- it, the, the limit doesn't exist. It, it, well, I had a, a mean girls moment. Um, but, you know, just denying its existence um, in opposition to what Trump himself has said in the past, it just kind of adds to the her overall um, assessment of what she's been dealing with, the inaccuracies, the, some of the erroneous reporting, so things not being handed in to her on time. And I also think it's kind of important that she points out specifically and explicitly in this letter to the court that came the Friday uh, after um, the closing arguments ended, where she said, look, I don't have the power to conclude that there's fraud, but let me show you some stuff. Uh, yep. And I think, I think it was kind of a uh, important that she that she brought up that point because she doesn't and but if you know one of the things as you said new york attorney general is asking for is to put in a a financial monitor that does have the power to say that there's fraud yeah i and i think here's the important thing to remember for all of the listeners here as well the report that barbara jones prepared basically starts when the litigation begins when New York Attorney General Letitia James files and then gets injunctive relief. So the appointment really took place um, in November of 2022. So you're talking about 14 months or so going forward. So even during the pendency of the litigation over 14 months, setting aside the six-month statute of limitations that's subject to this New York Attorney General lawsuit, going 
forward, the Trump organization still had these incomplete, inconsistent, and erroneous financials while under monitorship, where you're supposed to be on your best behavior. And it's, you know, one of the things that I'm reminded of that actually Roberta Kaplan said to the jury in the E. Jean Carroll case, he won't stop unless you make him stop. He is incapable of engaging in legal, lawful, normal, (laughs) whatever you want to call it, behavior, unless there is a firm order that stops. And here, even under the monitorship, just because her powers were limited to reports, Trump still took that as, I could get away with whatever. How do you not get a final report card when you're under a monitorship like that, that says that you've been totally transparent and above board, but you get you basically get the equivalent of a D minus or an F on your financial report from the monitor. It's pretty bad. Yeah. And Pete, there's there's something else also that happened this week that could could be explaining the delay, right? Yeah. And you mentioned that, you know, both Don Jr. and Eric said, hey, look, we even we don't necessarily understand what's going on behind the, uh, you know, all the layers. But one person who presumably does is Alan Weisselberg. And apparently there are ongoing negotiations, at least that have been reported between the Manhattan District Attorney and Weisselberg and his attorneys about a potential perjury charge. Can you talk about how that one does that impact what's going on at court? Is that possibly also playing into Judge and Goron's delay uh, with his with his judgment? Look, we got two monster developments since closing argument, and frankly, really over the past week. I mean, you've got Judge Barbara Jones' letter, and then you learn that Alan Weisselberg is in plea negotiations for committing perjury In this case, during his testimony, where he claims that he was not aware of Trump's fraudulent valuations, and we don't know the specifics around what the what the perjury could be, but we do know, for example, that uh, shortly after his testimony one day, Forbes published a series of emails (laughs) showing that they were informing him that the square footage of Trump's penthouse was 10,000 square feet and not 30,000 square feet, putting Weisselberg on notice. And I think Weisselberg testified that he never really had notice of that and never turned over those records. So there's a lot of things that Weisselberg could be lying about as well. Um, But again, that's a big deal. The report by the monitor Weisselberg committing perjury. If you're Justice and Goron and you know that Donald Trump and his team are going to be appealing this every which way, including attacking your law clerk's socks, it's going to be important for you in your final order to say, oh, and by the way, one of Trump's main witnesses, the former chief financial officer, pled guilty to a felony when he testified before me. And then the financial monitor found that Trump engaged in ongoing financial troubles and issues during the pendency of this litigation. How It would almost be judicial malpractice if we take a step back not to include those things in your order. And those are just things that you can just go, all right, I'm going to do that in one footnote. I mean, you really got to take care and tack to make sure and, and, and think through how that informs your broader order. So I, I think that that's what is going on. And we know about Justice and Goran. He didn't guarantee us 
that the verdict would be issued by February 1st. He did it. On January 11th, during closing argument, he said he would try to get it done. But we know within Goran, his aspirational deadlines, he usually beats. He's fastidious and very much would try to beat that date and deadline. So something else happened. We follow the data. You have to assume it's at least those two things. Plus, he may just be like, there's no need to rush here. Let me be careful. And I'm going to, whether I do it February 1st or February 16th or 17th, that's not really going to impact anything the same way. It's like, all right, DC Circuit Court of Appeals, as of the day of, of this record, it's a very different situation than it, it, the trial's already over. So it's just a matter of, you know, 10, 10 to 15 days. Yeah. And also, you know, if I'm Judge Angoran, if I've got now a, a negotiation for a guilty plea for perjury, you would I would I would assume you would want to review everything that he testified to, uh, and consider now his credibility on anything that he said on the stand, and that could also impact um, or make a difference in how you might have ruled before uh, compared to how you might rule now. So, thank you so much um, for yep. coming on and explaining this to us. It makes so much more sense now in my head. Uh, and thank you for your great work at Midas Touch Network. Everybody, MTN, check that out. We let everybody know where they can find and follow you all and all of your incredible independent media and reporting. Just passed 2 million subscribers on YouTube. So make sure you subscribe hey, to the Midas Touch YouTube channel. Thank you so much. Just hit 2.5 billion views on the YouTube channel as well. And also check us out, the Midas Touch podcast and the Legal AF podcast, wherever podcasts are available. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, we have to take a quick break, everybody, but stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, welcome back. We have some more patrons to thank. Sean Kelleher, Thomas Zepeda McMillan, John and Seal, Jennifer Bowles, Valerie Elliott, just a librarian from Akron, Akron Stephanie woo. Yeah, Stephanie Wright and Amanda Smith-Hood. Thank all of you for your support. Couldn't do this without you uh, and, and deeply, deeply appreciate your support of what we're doing and being part of the team. Uh, so with that, let's go from New York down to Georgia, down to Fulton County. Where so District much. Attorney, so much going on. District Attorney <laughs> Fonnie Willis filed her response to Mike Roman's conflict of interest allegations on February 2nd. Now, it includes a sworn affidavit saying that their personal relationship didn't begin until after uh, he was hired by the DA. And financial records also including that they each, when they traveled together, that they each paid their own way. So, uh, you know, one reading of this is it's pretty clear that there is, again, a sworn affidavit, uh, not just some, you know, allegations by a lawyer in a filing. There's a there's actual, you know, sworn testimony here that it, it is not, in fact, a conflict of interest. Yeah. And, and I think it's uh, of note too. I mean, you know, a little bit of background in case you're, you know, we kind of jumped right into this. Um, Mike Roman, who is one of the defendants in, in the sprawling racketeering case in Fulton County, filed a motion, uh, a pretty explosive motion several weeks ago to disqualify Fonnie Willis, have her removed from the case, have the entire DA's office removed from the case and to dismiss his indictment in its entirety, saying that there is a conflict of interest between Nathan Wade, who is one of the lead prosecutor, uh, special prosecutor on this case, and DA Fonnie Willis. And so he he made all of those allegations in his filing, didn't include any evidence in his filing, uh, just made the allegations. And um, a, a hearing was set for February 15th. 
Fannie Willis had until February 2nd to respond. And, and that's basically what's in her response. So that's kind of where we are. I'm very interested to see because we know that these are televised hearings. So we will all be able to watch that hearing uh, on the 15th. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but also Mike Roman now has filed a response to Fonnie Willis's February 2nd response. And in it, again, no sworn affidavits. <laughs> There's nothing in like at least Rudy Giuliani put some bullshit affidavits in his election lawsuits <laughs> with, with the Kraken team. Uh, but there's nothing in there for this. But he does say he has, that, I think, at least three or four witnesses that will testify uh, that that Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade were actually together. And he says cohabitating at some point, but that they got together before she hired him. Um, and the, the thing about the cohabitation accusation is really, uh, if you've read it, it seems ridiculous. You cohabitated in, what was it, Barbados or the Bahamas? You cohabitated at an Airbnb. Um, basically, they stayed in the same rooms while they were on vacations together. And from my understanding of cohabitation, that actually means like living together as partners or roommates or, you know, common law partners or whatever. Uh, and so it seems like already these allegations are just a huge Stretch, And he also takes kind of uh, umbrage with the fact that uh, Fonnie Willis is, is accusing their team of sort of colluding together or conspiring together to bring down the DA's office and get them thrown off the case. And so, uh, you know, he's he's pretty upset about that. But this whole when you when you have no sworn affidavits and you're really stretching the definition of cohabitation, it really throws into question your entire, you know, accusation, doesn't it? Yeah. And look, I think there's going to be some level of discretion by the judge about how much of this is going to be admitted in. I mean, they can't just send in a bunch of alleged witnesses who are going to, you know, talk about things that maybe they didn't have firsthand information or aren't directly relevant about the claim of a conflict. So expect that the court will limit, you know, what Mike Roman is trying to do is dirty them up as much as he can and create, you know, all kinds of, you know, things for Trump to glom on. I don't think just because he wants to have all these witnesses and testimony there. We'll see what the judge actually allows, but it, it's coming soon and we'll, we'll know shortly whether or not it has a, uh, a, a chance to success. But I think the particularly, again, and it was, it was not Fonnie Willis's, it was uh, Nathan Wade's declaration, his sworn affidavit laying out all these facts that go a long way, I think, to um, calm some of the concerns that some observers had about a potential conflict. Yeah, agreed. Even uh, I think Professor Kreese was like, well, the chances of disqualification went from about 5% to about 0.05% with this filing and this sworn affidavit. So again, we'll see what ends up happening. Yeah. And look, talking about Mike Roman, he's not done. He's also sued the district attorney's office for failing to hand over records under the Georgia Open Records Act and subpoenaed both Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis to testify during a hearing on January 5th, or February 15th. Now, this is from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis and Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade have been subpoenaed to testify at a February 15th hearing involving motions to disqualify them from the election interference case, according to a lawsuit filed on Tuesday. 
The lawsuit, found by the law firm of Ashley Merchant against the DA's office, contends that the office is intentionally withholding information sought in Open Records Act requests in advance of the upcoming hearing. The DA's office, in a recent letter, said it had complied with state law. Now, in addition, Merchant is also seeking to serve subpoenas to other members of the DA staff. They include Prosecutor Daisha Young, a member of the Trump prosecution team, Deputy District Attorney Sonia Allen, who's a member of the Anti-Corruption Division, who has also entered the race to be Cobb County District Attorney, and investigators Thomas Ricks and Michael Hill, Executive Assistant Tia Green, and Attorney Dexter Bond. So again, my sense, Allison, this is you know a, a lawsuit trying to sling a bunch of crap against the wall and see what sticks. I don't know that even though they are asking for all these subpoenas, that the court is going to allow them to sort of go on a fishing expedition through the DA's office, but we'll see. I mean, this is this is all about the the hearing on the February 15th, so, you know, about a week away right now. Yeah, fishing expedition was the first thing that came uh, into my mind. Um, uh, it, it's a, <laughs> a legal theory looking for evidence, right, uh, um, which is pretty typical of that, that side of the, you know, <laughs> the defense. We'll just put it that way. Um, and, uh, you know... I think I, I expect that Nathan Wade, Fonnie Willis, and probably some of these other folks will file a motion to quash these subpoenas. Um, and we'll see how Judge McAfee comes down on that as well, you know, because you talked about will they let, will he let the witnesses that Mike Roman wants to bring in testify? Uh, and, you know, and also Mike Roman's asking for a, an additional evidentiary hearing. So, you know, it's. Uh, a lot, and we'll see what ends up happening. But uh, we also just learned today, David Schaefer, um, who's one of the co-defendants, has also joined in this motion, just like Trump did. So now they're all sort of piling on uh, to this. So we'll see what ends up happening. Uh, but additionally, uh, some big news coming out of Georgia. Burt Jones has been accused of seeking election server access back in 2020. This is from the Atlantic, Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Jones, a state senator, representing Butts County at the time, uh, he's now lieutenant governor, was one of 16 Republicans who attempted to award Georgia's electoral votes to Trump after he lost to Joe Biden by about 12,000 votes. Now, Burt Jones has asked election officials back then in Butts County whether he could bring a forensic uh, analyst to inspect the county's elections management server. In December 2020, he was seeking access to this equipment. That's according to an email from Michael Barnes, the director of the Georgia Center for Election Systems. <laughs> and then he he got a response to that email. This would be against the law. That's <laughs> Ryan Germany, <laughs> general counsel for Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger at the time. Quote, they are not allowed to give an unauthorized person access to their EMS server. That would be a huge security breach, unquote. A judge ruled last year, you'll remember, that Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis had a conflict of interest and could not investigate Burt Jones because she had hosted a fundraiser for his Democratic opponent in the lieutenant governor's race. Um, and a special prosecutor, by the way, has not yet been appointed to consider allegations against Burt Jones. And that, Pete, seems to me to be kind of be the goal of taking Fonnie Willis off this case. How long has it been? And they still don't have a special prosecutor to investigate Burt Jones. The rest of the co-defendants, I think, would like to be in the same boat. 
Yeah, and keep in mind, too, the, one of the advantages of having this at a state level is that even if Trump is reelected, he can't make this case go away. But you know who can make it go away? Georgia voters. So as local elections come around, if there is a new district attorney, if there are new, if there are political changes within the elected folks in the Georgia state system, that could all adversely potentially impact these trials or, to your point, getting a... Uh, special prosecutor appointed even. So delay is your friend if you have not been charged and probably should have been charged. And that absolutely seems to be the case of what, uh, you know, Burt Jones is counting on and I'm sure trying to uh, slow any movement down on that front. Yeah. And boy, howdy, would David Schaefer and the rest of his gang love to have the DA's office taken off this and, and wait months and months and months and months to have another special prosecutor be appointed. Um, and that's why everyone was sort of talking about when these allegations first came out and we didn't know how unserious they were. Uh, everyone was like, well, maybe uh, DeKalb County or Cobb County can take it over instead of, you know, having to appoint a, a special, a whole different special prosecutor and having to wait like we're having to wait on Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones. Uh, so we'll keep an eye on that story. Um, because you can't breach election equipment. It's, as that lawyer wrote, that would be against the law. So um, we will uh, continue the coverage of Fulton County. Uh, and um, we have some more news to get to, including some Hunter Biden stuff. But we have to take another quick break. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We have more new patrons to thank. Thank you so much to Hey Maga, Eat Your Boogers for a Stronger Immune System. Okay, solid advice. Steve Mann, Nathan Dorn, Kenny's Surgeon, the one who cuts the cheese bro, <laughs> and Thomas Lorraine Burgess, AK, Reagan New, OJ Did It, and Trump Lost, and Naomi Black. Thank you so much uh, for signing up to be patrons. Again, you get to create your own name as evidence there. Uh, you can do that at patreon.com slash aisle45pod. And again, we're having, uh, Pete, we're having a happy hour this Friday. I'm yep. excited. Bring all your questions. Bring a drink, alcoholic or non-alcoholic of your uh, preferred uh, flavor, and we will sit and chat and answer some questions and talk about whatever is on everybody's mind. And there hopefully should be plenty of things on people's minds. So looking forward to that. Yep. For a full hour, starting at 3 p.m. Pacific this Friday. That's 6 p.m. Eastern. All right. Let's talk about, because uh, we didn't talk about Hunter Biden last week, but a lot of stuff has happened in the Hunter Biden case with the, you know, special prosecutor David Weiss, as we know, appointed by Barr back in the day to investigate Hunter Biden. Um, this is over five years ago now. Um, but Hunter Biden's lawyer, Abby Lowell, as we know, has filed a reply. It's called Reply in Support of Motion to Dismiss on Vindictive and Selective Prosecution Grounds. And the reply is, so they've, they've filed their motion to dismiss on vindictive selective prosecution. Then David Weiss came in and we talked about his response to it. Now we have Abby Lowell and Hunter Biden's reply to that response. That's the the general flow of things in federal court. You have a brief, you get a response, and then you get a reply. So this is the reply. And, you know, it's it's interesting because between the initial brief that Abby Lowell and Hunter Biden made saying that this is vindictive and selective prosecution, their motion to dismiss, between that and this response, Marcy Wheeler did something really interesting. She sent a letter to the court and asked them to unseal the docket and the search warrant affidavits 
uh, because mainly she wanted to see when those search warrants were applied for and granted. And one of the search warrants, which was for Hunter Biden's iCloud account, which is where David Weiss says he got the evidence proving Hunter Biden's state of mind during the gun charges stuff, that search warrant apparently wasn't obtained until three months after the indictment happened. And this whoosh, I went right back to Durham because remember how he went around the courts to get evidence and did all these things to kind of get evidence in, in, in wrong ways. And there wasn't uh, a successful motion to dismiss on vindictive and selective prosecution in that case, but Durham lost his case in court based on a lot of that um, evidence gathering. And so the point I think here that Marcy Wheeler was trying to make, and congratulations to her for sending out that letter to the court and getting those dates unsealed on those search warrants. The point I think she was trying to make is that it's really hard to argue that you were going to bring charges this whole time uh, if you waited until after the indictment to get the search warrant, if that makes any sense. And not only that, but Abby Lowell also argues this in his reply motion here, his reply for his motion to dismiss, um, that it's it's not, it, and by the way, he mentions Marcy, you know, that the date on that, um, on that search warrant that Marcy Wheeler was able to uncover. He mentions that in this response. Um, so congratulations again to Marcy Wheeler for uncovering that information, but also that the diversion agreement, uh, there's been no additional evidence um, obtained since the diversion agreement. And so his argument is that one, when David Weiss came out and said, we're going to do a plea agreement here, a diversion agreement, he's, you know, agreed to go to rehab, he's going to plead guilty, he's not going to go to jail. When that all came out, the right wing machine, Donald Trump, Jim Jordan, Comer, they were all extremely pissed off that this ended in, in no indictment and no charges. And so the argument here is that all of that political pressure from Donald Trump, the right wing media machine, and the Republicans in Congress is what prompted um, David Weiss to file charges. Yeah. And I'm really, you know, we're still at the argument that this should all be dismissed if it isn't and it continues forward towards trial and discovery starts occurring. I mean, the government has, you know, they were doing a criminal investigation, right? So they've had all these search warrants, these late search warrants. And by the way, like nobody's better than Marcy in terms of bringing receipts, her memory, her like attention to detail is, is really amazing. But I think if it is not dismissed, where we next see Abby Lowell going is like, all right, you've got most of the information about my client. Let's see what you've got. And let's talk about in particular, you know, these IRS agents who were involved in this investigation, who ostensibly as whistleblowers went in front of these highly, highly partisan Republican committees to testify about what they believed uh, went on and didn't go on, some of which was rebutted by statements directly from the U.S. attorney and others. But there is so much that is such a ripe field for discovery on the part of Abby Lowell, who is already, you know, is a very aggressive attorney, perhaps too aggressive, but when stuff like this is uh, involved, if this case is not dismissed, what he is going to potentially be able to get. And again, he doesn't, it's one thing he could go to Congress and ask for stuff and maybe he'll get it, but he certainly can go to the IRS and these private individuals and say, provide this information. And it doesn't have the same sort of shield. So I think there is a lot ahead. I think there's a lot in here that's very problematic for the government. 
and we'll see how it works out. I mean, you know, it didn't work out well for Durham, right? We had two <laughs> unanimous uh, acquittals within, you know, what was it, like four hours and eight hours or something. I just, I, I don't, I think there's a lot of trouble ahead for the yeah. government in this case. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree with that uh, 100%. And boy, waiting until now to spring all this stuff on, you know, waiting till the... <laughs> 2023 to spring on it about over five year investigation that seems a little more like election interference to me than uh, what the department of justice is doing against donald trump for january 6th just, yeah. just throwing that out there and speaking of election interference where the hell is rob hers special counsel report on joe biden's maintenance of uh, classified documents in delaware where that's done right didn't we get an announcement that's complete it's now february well they didn't want to release it until the election year Right, well, yeah, of course. And well, so God knows we can't get it out in February, March. Let's hold on to it. Oh, like October, right? Is that a good time to release that report? Which inevitably <laughs> will have something that, I mean, come on. Come on. This is done. You're not prosecuting them. Where's the goddamn report? Sorry, save the swearing for the bonus episode. But <laughs> there, there are just things in there that, that get me that get me fired up. All, speaking of getting me fired up, let's, let's go back to New York. And uh, E.G. and Carol's lawyer... Roberta Kaplan had a back and forth with none other than Alina Haba. Haba had submitted a notice to the court alleging a conflict of interest because of a mentor-mentee relationship between Judge Lewis Kaplan and E. Jean Carroll lawyer Roberta Kaplan. Now, in Haba's letter, she cited the authoritative reporting of the New York Post. Ah, her source isn't that the same the, paper that put out the Hunter Biden laptop uh, BS mm, story? Funny, okay. funny how that works, right? And and that was the source of this alleged mentor-mentee relationship. Now, Roberta Kaplan, nobody's fool, which everybody should be clear about at this point. She shot back explaining that, yeah, you know, we both worked at the same law firm in the early 1990s. I wish she would have said the, the late 1900s. 30 years ago. Yes, the late <laughs> 1900s. 30 years ago. Two, they didn't even know each other. And she has no recollection of any meeting with the judge during that time. And finally said, oh, hey, well, you know what? Also, by the way, Haba made the false accusation before the New York Post story came out. So obviously, it can't be the source. And perhaps, perhaps these allegations are fabricated. And then the little cherry on top of the Sunday. She reserved her right to file for Rule 11 sanctions against Haba. <laughs> and scrambling, Haba then writes back, same day, oh, walk back her accusations and close the letter saying, well, she's going to assume that this issue, quote unquote, has been resolved. <laughs> you know, like, I, I don't know that you necessarily are the only voice in determining whether or not this matter has, in fact, been resolved. So, yeah, we'll I was see. Just, oh, no, I was just kidding. Uh, you I, know, I... <laughs> well, I hey. I, I would love, I would love to see uh, what comes out of this. I mean, I will. I is is Robbie Kaplan going to let this go? No, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I wouldn't, um, because well, well, you know, kind of what where the crux of this is. Robbie Kaplan says she that the fact that her and the judge both worked at a law firm in the '90s has been public information for a really long time. And, you know, she's saying the Haba is the source here, not the New York, not the New York Post, excuse me. Um, and so she believes that Haba knew about the brief overlap before the verdict and only waited until after the really terrible verdict to raise this as an issue, also subject to Rule 11 sanctions, by the way. So, 
you know, that's kind of what Navarro did this with his, the jury went out for a break of a breath of fresh air and saw a guy who had a sign on the ground and all of a sudden uh, the verdict is tainted, you know, because the jury saw these protesters outside of the courthouse, like three people, um, and they weren't even standing next to each other. And uh, of course, uh, the the prosecution was like, Your Honor, this is clearly he didn't like the verdict. And so he brought this up after the verdict. So uh, same kind of situation. You can't do you can't bring up stuff that you don't like about the trial or or claim things that are unfair until after the verdict, unless you genuinely didn't know about it until after the verdict. Yeah. And keep in mind, too, remember that both Alina uh, and Trump and uh, Peter Tickton are already on the hook for $938,000 of sanctions down in Florida, which they're appealing, but I don't think that's going to uh, get anywhere. But this this just uh, an opportunity for her to add to her tab. So let's see. I hope I hope Robbie Kaplan uh, does something. Again, this is not vindictive uh, desire to go after it. It's to sanction bad behavior. As, as Ben was talking about earlier, the way, the only way you get Trump and all his enablers to stop is to make them stop. And the way you make them stop is to go after sanctions for, for bad behavior. So I hope, um, keep, keep hope alive that Robbie Kaplan does the right thing here. Yeah, agreed. And, uh, you know, speaking of aging, we haven't really seen any uh, continuing and ongoing defamation since that verdict came down. I think he retruthed one story, um, f- like, about... Uh, about E. Jean Carroll, um, like 14 things wrong with E. Jean Carroll's testimony or something. But but outside of that, um, compared to the hundreds of, you know, posts on his social media, which is under criminal, federal criminal investigation, by the way, for money laundering, um, that, you know, that he made during the trial and before the trial and the continuing and ongoing defamation, which, by the way, probably pumped up that, you know, $148 million uh, verdict. Uh, no, excuse me, $83.3 million. I can't keep my uh, verdicts against... It's uh, so many, a million here, a million yeah. there. All of a sudden, we're into hundreds of millions of dollars. And we're not, do- we're not done. We're I not know, done. I was confusing the best Rudy word. Giuliani's defamation <laughs> with, uh, yeah, with that. So $83, $83 million. So that seems to have been an amount to do the trick. Uh, we'll see how long it holds. All right, we have to take another quick break, but we have some more news to get to. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is our final list of patrons to thank today. Michael Price, Buffy Nakachi, Patty Gibbons, Kendra Petricor, Lauren Stricker, Kathy Schmidt, Roger Roger, Joe Pearson, and Betty. Uh, thank all of you so much. Thank you for your donations. Thank you for your support. Uh, you do get access, as Allison said, to things like the bonus episode, to the cocktail hour coming up this Friday. So looking forward to meeting all all of the older patrons, the new patrons, uh, really looking forward to that conversation. All right. So tomorrow, as you're listening to this, uh, the Supreme Court is scheduled for oral arguments about disqualifying Donald Trump from the ballot in Colorado under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Now, Trump's arguments include, one, the president is not an officer of the United States, which, of course, is amusing based on he his argument in the E. Jean Carroll case that the president, in fact, is an officer of the United States, so let's, you know, have a cake and eat it too. Two, Trump really didn't engage in insurrection, which is going to be a little difficult given the textualist bent of the conservatives on the Supreme Court. And Trump saying, in fact, hey, there was no insurrection at all, saying, quote, 
it did not involve an organized effort to overthrow or resist the U.S. government, unquote. And hey, by the way, it was, you know, only three hours. There weren't really basically pretty much any firearms, even though there were quite a few firearms. And so therefore, not an insurrection. Yeah. And by the way, I have to point out that Pete right here isn't joking. He didn't add that uh, only three hours and there weren't any firearms. He uh, Trump actually wrote that in his brief to the Supreme Court. Yeah, it's like, I'm sure trying to make the same argument with Stormy, it couldn't have been sex because it was only a minute and a half long, right? I mean, I, it, it's the same sort of, it's the same argument, it's nonsense. And, you know, he, he keeps going, saying, look, Section 3 should only be enforced through Congress, and it, it's not, in fact, self-executing, even though Judge Ludig and any number of other profoundly smart constitutional scholars are like, no, no, it's a, it is, in fact, self-executing. And then... <laughs> some more just absurd arguments. He's arguing that Section 3 prevents a person from holding office, not for seeking office. So in other words, it's fine for me to, you know, just push the decision down the line because I can seek it. And Judge Ludic, again, he found an amicus brief on this and the, <laughs> the potential hypothetical saying, okay, so say a person wins hypothetically, and then they're disqualified, walk through all the, you know, all the crazy permutations that I think yeah, you and you and Andy had uh, Judge Ludig on the Jack podcast, right? Yeah. And that was before this particular amicus brief was written. Um, we, we were uh, discussing his amicus brief, at his at all, I should say, it was a group of folks in the uh, immunity case. But uh, same argument, because we did talk about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment on that show. But like the hypotheticals are like, what well, do we got to go to the 12th Amendment? Does it get thrown to Congress where they have to vote on delegates? You know, all those arguments that we had leading up to 2020 saying, what if nobody reaches 270? It's basically we run into that. And, you know, kind of like if you allowed a 17 year old to run for president and that 17 year old won and then you had to disqualify. And so there was another amicus brief filed uh, by another group of people saying uh, kind of like right along the same lines, like think of all of the hypothetical things that would come up that the constitutional crises that would arise if you allowed a disqualified person to run and win and then tried to disqualify them. You'd simply just be kicking the can down the road. And that is a really, really bad idea. So that was, uh, I think, also put in that other amicus brief, not the Judge Ludwig one, but still very good arguments. Yeah. And then finally, Trump argues that, well, look, the Colorado Supreme Court violated the Elector's Clause, saying that the legislature, the Colorado state legislature, has to disqualify him, that the Supreme Court can't do it. But you know what the trouble there is? That's what Colorado law says the process is. So this is going to get very interesting when you get uh, all these textualists and adherents and believers in uh, states' rights on the conservative part of the Supreme Court. It's going to be really curious. And part of this, like the state of Colorado has, I think, 10 minutes in the oral brief to be heard. So they're going to be arguing uh, tomorrow, as you're listening to this, as part of the um, as part of the briefs for the Supreme Court. Uh, does Trump have a solid argument in any of these? No, in my opinion. But does that mean that, you know, any sort of uh, prospect of how the Supreme Court's going to rule in this case? I really don't know. I, I could not, I'm not even going to try and predict it. I, I just have no idea how they're going to fall on this. 
Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, The Trump side gets 40 minutes. Jenna Griswold gets 10. And then the petitioners who filed the lawsuit in Colorado get 30. So each side ends up with a total of 40 minutes to argue. It'll probably go, it usually goes longer than that. Um, And it'll be interesting to kind of game out where all of these justices are based on their questions, because I believe this is going to be live streamed. I think we're going to be able to hear the arguments um, not see them, but hear them as they happen. And you can also follow a lot of really amazing intrepid uh, reporters who will probably be live tweeting it uh, as it happens. But it's, I have long thought that the Supreme Court will allow him to be on the ballot, but I can't think of a good reason. I can't think of a good legal reason for them to do it. Um, and it's interesting because in, in his initial brief, Trump was not arguing that he didn't engage in insurrection. This is new. This is one of a a couple of new arguments that he's bringing up um, in this new brief, this recent brief that he filed on Monday to the Supreme Court ahead of these arguments. And that, I'm, I'm also trying to figure out why, because does he really want the Supreme Court to rule on whether or not he engaged in insurrection? Because they may find that the for some reason, somehow, the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment doesn't apply to him. But if they confirm, it's almost like he's daring them to confirm that he engaged in insurrection. Um, And now, of course, they don't have to. I don't don't think they have to answer that question just because it's brought. They might say, it's moot or whatever. We're not going to touch it. And I, you know, I've I've thought that they probably won't want to dip their you know, judicial robes into that political nightmare. Uh, but, you know, they they have agreed to hear these arguments and, and we'll see how that goes, especially the questions asked by the judges about what an insurrection is, if they even, you know, I think they'll I think they'll entertain arguments on it, but I don't know that they'll necessarily make a ruling on it. Um, but this is a very important hearing. And of course, how the Supreme Court decides will impact whether any other states can or will remove him from the ballot, right? Because if they say he's on the ballot, then he, you know, there's that's the, what the Supreme Court says. So no other state could come up and argue to the Supreme Court otherwise, unless, I mean, unless they have new arguments. But I think maybe that's why he put that on there to cover all the argument bases so that it can't be brought up again or brought up again in the general election versus the primary ballot. But we'll see. We'll see how they end up ruling again. I don't think they're going to keep him off the ballot here. But I, again, I don't know how they justify putting him on. Yeah, I don't either. And I think they are going to try and find a way that they can answer the question for every state that might have a question about whether or not to do this rather than just narrowly addressing Colorado. And keep in mind, too, the backdrop, you know, let's go back to Alina Haba, who had a series of statements about, you know, Justice Brett Kavanaugh in particular and how everything that Trump did for him and she's sure that he'll do the right thing. So there's also, you know, it's the kind of thing at the end of the day that, you know, so much of what Alina Haba does sounds good in a uh, OAN Newsmax soundbite, but in the real world, it has a habit of coming back back to bite you in the butt. I don't think those statements are going to land very well with Justices Kavanaugh or uh, Amy Coney Barrett or the the folks that Trump appointed. I just, it's, she's, she's playing with fire there. Uh, you know, are they going to, you know, get smacked back? No, but they're certainly not doing themselves any favors. Yeah. And there are a ton of amicus briefs to, to uh, consider in this particular case. Um, so well, we'll we'll hear all about it. Uh, and I again, I, I think it'll probably go longer than eighty minutes. 
Um, but we'll see. And, you know, I, I like to listen to the questions that the justices asked. I, we, we did this pretty closely in the immunity hearing at the D.C. Circuit level. And you can kind of gauge where justices are uh, based on their questions, but sometimes not. Sometimes they ask those questions to clear it and get it out of the way. Um, so it'll be, again, very, very interesting to listen to these arguments as they happen in a very historic hearing. Yeah, absolutely. So if you got free time tomorrow, tune in. Um, I'm absolutely going to listen to it. And, you know, again, happy hour, patrons. We can talk about it uh, tomorrow or day after tomorrow after you listen to it. <laughs> time travel <laughs> is weird with the podcast world. Um, thank you all so much. And thanks to our new patrons. We really, really appreciate uh, you supporting independent media, supporting this show. We could not do it without you. So again, thank you, thank you, thank you. We'll see you Friday. And of course, uh, patrons, we'll also see you this weekend on our on our bonus episode where, where more swears happen. Do you have any final thoughts, Pete? Nope. See you all at the happy hour and then uh, the bonus after that. So All right. Cool. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. Cleanup on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Cleanup on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. <laughs>